Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1977, and we are in a kitchen with a boy, a girl, and a bunch of lobsters. The movie, Annie Hall. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear will be here in just a second, but you don't need him. You have me to say right now that this is the show where every week we go through one of the films on the AFI's top 100 list from 2007 and talk about what that film is like today. Put it in a context of history, put it in context of the modern era, put it in context of what this film contributes to this great messy thing we call cinema. However you define cinema, we are not getting into the fight of what is cinema today. Last week, Paul and I were both just dazzled to talk about the film The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946. It is a film about three soldiers or three different people from different branches of the military who return home to their small town and just try to get their footing. And the women that they love, the families that they love, try to get their footing too, the kids. It's a whole big, lovely, lovely, beautiful film that is kind of hard to find. We are sad about that. Um, and it was a film that just blew Paul away. He had never, it, this is the film that he was like, what are you? I only know that there is a man who has hooks for hands. And he walked away a best years of our life uh, bestia. I don't know what a bestia is. I'm trying to think of like a, a fan group for the best years. Anyway, we should come up with a name for the fans of the best years of our lives because it turns out there are just bazillions of them. Everybody who has seen this movie loves this movie. I loved this week on just being online, just having people say, I'm so happy we're talking about this movie. It feels like a lot of people have stumbled across it on TCM, maybe seen it when they were kids. Uh, maybe a father showed it to them, a grandfather, and it's always had a special heart in their life. And now they can talk about it with other people. And that is one of the most beautiful things about doing this show. David Markham at DA Marco for you writes, one of the best things about Best Years is that the title came from a throwaway line, Virginia Mayo's rant as she leaves Dana Andrews. And what were their best years? Was it before for Homer, during for Fred, who was a hero, or after? You know, or is it simply any period where the people are at peace? I think that's actually a really interesting question because we talk a lot in the modern era about the best years of American history. And it does feel like when you look at them, they weren't as best as everybody said. And so I like that this film itself comes from a throwaway line that's also a bit of a side-eye line. So I like that. Thank you, David. On that note, Trevor Sean MD says that they are giving side-eye to us here on Unspooled for forgetting that DVD is a thing and that the best years of our lives has been released in the format several times and can be bought for as little as $2. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, Sean, you're very right. I'm just saying it's the only one that you can't just stream. And that does seem to be a thing. Also, I'm sorry, I'm terrified of hoarding and I don't like to own things, so that's on me. Over on Facebook, Adam Pillman says, I think this film absolutely belongs on the list. It's beautifully shot and acted. It tackles a number of topical themes with intelligence and honesty. I mean, is there another high-caliber film of this era that so openly deals with the problems faced by returning GIs? And it's subtly progressive about issues like alcoholism and marriage in a way that almost no Hollywood films were until well after the end of the Blacklist era. 
Absolutely agree. And I'm glad, glad to also touch in on that, on the Blacklist era and how films like this, films like Grapes of Wrath, another film that a lot of people talking about this episode made a parallel to. It is wild to me that a film with this much of a big heart got so investigated. It's sort of like if you found out that there was a giant FBI file on Fred Rogers, which perhaps there honestly was. That said, there was one quibble that we had with the movie, which is just that the son that apparently Frederick March has, who's there in the film at the very beginning, just absolutely vanishes and is never seen again. Uh, Dr. Wes Anthony on Twitter writes, well, Frederick March's son in the best years of our lives goes where he belongs, on the cutting room floor. Gadzooks, he was the only lousy actor in that picture. There were chairs more charismatic than him. Which, ouch, 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 ouch. But maybe fair. If you're listening and you consider those fighting words, well, that's fine. That is a decent segue into our intro to this week's film, Annie Hall. You know, as you know, in Annie Hall, there is a scene where Woody Allen is in line for the movie theater. He gets mad at, a, at what a man is saying behind him about media and cinema. And he pulls in the great intellectual Marshall McLuhan to tell him that he's wrong. Uh, so we asked you last week, if you could bring anyone into an argument, who would you bring to help you win? So if I could bring anyone to an argument, I think it would be James Madison. There's so many political arguments around gun control or impeachment currently or anything where people are like, oh, the founders intended this, the founders intended that. It would be so great just to be able to say, here's James Madison, just tell us what you intended and then we'll probably ignore it anyway. The next time someone says that something a little bit out of the ordinary is surreal, I'd like to call in the father of surrealism himself, Andre Breton, so that he could go, this is not surreal. It's not the least bit surreal. It could never be surreal. I would love to bring Jesus into a conversation with literally anyone so he could look at them and be like, you know, that's not really what I had in mind. I'm going to go with Emily Dickinson since I'm binging the Haley Steinfeld show right now. And my favorite film release this year was Molly Shannon's Wild Nights with Emily. But uh, I'd love to be able to pull her out in conversations with straight washers who seem to think that gay people didn't exist prior to the 1980s and just have her be like, that girl and I were not just friends. Uh, the firebrand in me, the woman with very sharp lobster claws, loves all of those answers. Thank you very much. And also, I just want to second that Molly Shannon's Wild Nights with Emily is fantastic. I reviewed that movie out of South By and it was so, 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 so fun. Definitely a movie that went under the radar and should be checked out. But we'll put a pin in that because now it is time for our feature presentation. So, Amy, before we get into today's episode, um, we want to offer you uh, a trigger warning because this is uh, going to be talking about a Woody Allen film. And we know that that carries a lot of baggage. And we wrestled with how to talk about this movie. And same way we talked about Chinatown, we wanted to make sure that a, we are acknowledging what we know about Woody Allen uh, and giving you a chance to check out if you don't want to hear a conversation about him where we will be complimenting him and speaking highly of him. This is going to be our chance to kind of talk about the, the major issues uh, that are held against him. And then we're going to go into our actual episode. Yeah, I mean, the issues with Woody Allen kind of boil down to two things, one of which is very established. Nobody disagrees on that. He cheated on his wife, Mia Farrow, with their adopted daughter, Sun Yi, and then married her, and they're still married to her today. And the second is that he is accused of molesting another daughter that he had, another adopted daughter that he had with Mia Farrow uh, when she was seven years old. He has denied the allegations. The Connecticut state attorney did investigate the allegations but did not press charges. Um, and one reason that we've been told that they did not press charges is just that 
me didn't want to, her daughter to have to be, go through the experience of being cross-examined on the stand when she was really young. Uh, so this has split the family, and this has split a lot of Woody Allen's acquaintances, friends, supporters, and enemies. And those are the established facts and the debatable facts. Yes, and it's something that has been going on for quite a long time, and it seems like now— uh, more recently, a tide has really turned in the last couple of years. You know, you see actors making some bold statements like, I would never work with Woody Allen again. Other actors donating money that they got from working on Woody Allen projects uh, to uh, organizations uh, to help, you know, abused or molested children. And even it's turned into Woody Allen losing his deal at Amazon, uh, which he's currently in a lawsuit with. So this has been something that's been going on for a long time and is still uh, very much uh, a thing that that is in our culture that is uh, kind of being parsed as as or as much as last week people are coming out saying I would or I would not work with him. So this film that we're going to be talking about was before the events that we just described, and uh, we're just kind of kind of know this. And if this bothers you, then I would say turn it off now, and uh, we'll see you next week, and uh, and that will be that. La Dida, it's 1977, and Glenn Burke and Dusty Baker of the Los Angeles Dodgers invent the high five. That's right, right here in LA. After seeing Star Wars, James Cameron quits his job as a truck driver and he decides to pursue film. Nike draws inspiration from the last words of executed murderer Gary Gilmore, who uttered, Just do it. 80 year old Miskel Spillman hosts SNL after winning their Anyone Can Host contest. The Atari 2600 console, Chia Pets, and Slim Faster all released for the first time. The big movies are Star Wars, Smokey and the Bandit, Saturday Night Fever, and today's film, Annie Hall. It's ranked number 35 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, having slipped four points from the original placement in the 1997 list. Wow. Every week lately, I suspect you are making up at least one or two things on that list. That's fine. Just do it. We'll carry on. Let's start by listening to a clip of Annie Hall. I keep sifting the pieces of the relationship through my mind and, and examining my life and trying to figure out where did the screw-up come, you know? And a year ago, we were in love, you know? And, and, and I just... And it's funny, I'm not, a, I'm not a morose type. I'm not a depressive character. I... I, I uh, you know, I was a reasonably happy kid, I guess. I was brought up in Brooklyn during World War II. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something you read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart, and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? That voice you hear is, of course, director and star Woody Allen, who co-wrote the script with Marshall Brickman. And it is a story about a breakup and a story about a man looking at his childhood, his past neuroses, figuring out what his problem is and what he brings forth in all of his relationships. You have in here several people playing his ex-girlfriends, Carol Kane, Shelley Duvall, Janet Margolin, and, of course, his real-life ex-girlfriend, Diane Keaton, as Annie Hall and... We got to mention Tony Roberts as his best friend, Rob, who we're going to be talking to later in the show. So excited to talk to Tony Roberts. Um, Amy, this film is actually very difficult for me to kind of talk about because I can't look at it from a unbiased point of view as far as being a fan of it. This movie is like part of me. You know, I I love it. I feel like 
so much of comedy is birthed from this movie that the same way that Pulp Fiction kind of just is inside of me. That's how I feel about this movie. It's just, it's such a through line comedically. You know, how do you feel about Annie Hall? I'm so sorry that the thing that popped in my head was I just want to ask you, do you have any Woody Allen inside of you? Oh boy, oh boy. Sorry. After that big disclaimer at the top, you're going to talk about it right away. (laughs) What? Me? Uh, that's just a classic vaudeville type of punchline that I think Alvy Singer would, would say himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, Annie Hall has been in the fabric of my life as long as I think I've been trying to watch classic movies. And what I'm really interested to talk about with you today is how much this movie seemed different to me on this watch. The older I get, I think the more I see depth in it that I don't think I even saw when I was a kid. Does that make sense? Like, this is a movie that I think I saw as, like, Woody Allen thinking he's cute and smug and smarmy and the movie being so much on his side. And then in this watch, I was like, oh, wow, this is really very much a movie about a man looking at what a dick he is. Yeah, this is a really triumphant story for Diane Keaton's character, for Annie Hall. She, you know, basically separates herself from him to become a better person. Like, he's holding her down. And it's not really the trajectory that you see of many films that are trying to ape this movie. I think that if you look at comedy films, romantic comedy films, everyone's trying to do their riff on this story. And this has a a sad ending, ultimately, that is actually really triumphant. Like, you leave feeling positive, uh, even though the two characters have gone their separate ways. Yeah, I mean, the chronology of this is really interesting because you have Woody Allen going through a lot of his past relationships chronologically. You know, he goes through Carol Kane, who was his first wife, then Janet, who was his second wife. He eventually gets to dating Shelley Duvall later on. But his relationship with Annie happens in reverse. You see them at their worst right right at the start of the movie. You see them slowly backwards in time, backwards in time, fall to the point where they met. Then you watch them progress as they fall in love and then break up again, and then you watch them break up again. Yeah. And so you you see the relationship at so many stages. And I think because I was thinking of this today, like, why did I just assume this movie was on his side when I was in high school? And I think it's because the first introduction we have to Annie Hall is when she's just furious and breaking up with him and mad. Yeah, you know, like they start he starts their relationship at the worst part. She says, what you do, That's come right. by way of the Panama right. Canal? I'm in a bad mood, okay? Bad mood? I'm standing with the cast of The Godfather. You're going to have to learn to deal with it. Deal? I'm dealing with two guys named Cheech. Okay, please, I have a headache, all right? Hey, you are in a bad mood. You, you must be getting your period. I'm not getting my period. Jesus, every time anything out of the ordinary happens, you think that I'm getting my period. A little, little ladder. I think one of them may have missed it. I mean, so we get introduced to her as being so mad at him. And also that throwaway line that he's with the cast of The Godfather is so funny because he actually is with the cast of The Godfather, but it is her, Diane Keaton. Well, and also the movie's DP is Gordon Willis, who shot The Godfather. I mean, this is and this is maybe a year after The Godfather comes out. Yeah, there's so many Godfather references in this. They're staring at people in the park and he's like, that guy's from The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it shows how big that film was. But. You know, I think this idea that Woody Allen is the hero is basically because he has all the jokes. And that's not to say that Diane Keaton is not incredibly funny and charming and great, but he literally has jokes. And and so I think you feel a connection to him, but he's showing you he's a dick right here because he basically blames her bad mood on her period. Like that's, you know, and it's a really insightful 
examination of oneself because I think, you know, this character, Alvy Singer, is essentially what we assume Woody Allen is. Which he has tried to deny over and over again. But you can't deny it when basically Alvy Singer is a version of almost every character he has kind of played. They all have similar elements. And this character follows an incredible career trajectory of Woody Allen. I mean, they're using real clips from the Dick Cavett show. They are, you know, he is- Real clips suck that, Forrest. (laughs) (laughs) And, And also at the end, he's writing- a play of Annie Hall, like, which is, it's so meta. I love it. But I mean, that's what is so kind of genius about this movie. And I I didn't realize it before. He's doing so many things here from, you know, messing with timelines to jumping into animation. He is um, playing with very big ideas of talking to the camera, Interacting with people, some things feel like a documentary almost, you know, and then, you know, are these real people? Are these actors when he's stopping people on the street? It, there's a lot of um, really naturalistic performances in it. It's a really interesting movie that fluctuates between all these tones, but yet at the core is incredibly incisive. And I think that that's what I've always kind of missed. Speaking of kind of like the hero's imbalance of the script, like Alvy Singer is the one who's able to stop time, right? Right. He's able to stop time and he's able to look at you, the audience. He's able to just be in this ghostly beige background world and be like, here's how I see things. He's able to even take the other characters on this a Christmas Carol Scrooge McDuck version of, of his childhood. He's able to be like, all right, Annie, Tony, you guys are coming with me. We're going to watch my childhood together and comment on it like it's the ghost yeah. of Christmas past or something. So he's able to do all these things to try to convince the audience to be on his side. But this watch, I really noticed how much Woody Allen himself is calling himself out on his hypocrisy in the scenes themselves. Because here's a guy who spends his entire movie yelling loudly to the camera about everything he's mad about, everything he's embarrassed about. And every time Annie Hall tries to say, I'm upset about this, he's like, shh, people can hear you. So he's insisting, even in the movie, that he gets the last word. And I think he's aware, right, of the hypocrisy? Well, he has to be. I mean, the final scene of the film, or one of the final scenes, is, like I said, he's writing a play about the relationship where he changes the ending. You know, she decides to stay with him in his version. So ultimately, Alvy Singer is an unreliable narrator because at the end of the film, we know that the story that he's telling is based on the way that he wanted it to be or the way that he saw himself, which I love. And I think that that end forgives everything else because it shows him for who he is. He's not trying to hide it. And I think coming about this film, or at least the way I I saw it, it's a very different type of film in the way it was built. I think the first version of the script, it wasn't even a love story. Actually, listen to Marshall Brickman, his co-writer, talk about how the script evolved. And, and Annie Hall was not even a dominant character in the first draft. There were a lot of women, different wives. It was the one that ultimately became Carol. Kane was a wife and one, you know, it was um, much different. The, the girl, the dominant other, you know, part of the relationship was a New York girl, just like Woody, um, in the first draft. And then the second draft, she was from Wisconsin with a totally different background. So already, you know, you could see the development of some desire to, to, to create uh, some potential for tension and, and disagreements and different backgrounds and so on. So, you know, there's that element that he's kind of playing around with what this movie's even about. And they, there's a part where it was going to be a murder mystery, you know, and that actually was taken out and then used in Manhattan murder mystery years and years later. But, 
you know, this movie seems to have evolved in a way where he found it as he was making it and as he was editing it. And maybe at that end where he starts to see all these puzzle pieces, like, oh, I made a movie about myself. He didn't even realize how introspective he was until he saw all the pieces. The original cut is like four hours and this movie comes in a very brisk 90 minutes. But it seems from everything I've read as if it was cold all in the edit. Like, no, that needs to go here. And they reshot the ending. And and I think they reshot the opening to kind of put these bookends on it. Like he found the movie or found it, you know, in a way that is incredibly personal, but not realizing it. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, I love that we get to have a salute to an editor, you know, yeah. I mean, also four hours. It feels like I'm surprised that if I didn't just unearth the four hour cut and put it up there, cause like a 90 minute movie, how, how dare they let that happen <laughs> on this list? But again, it's but, a great thing to show. Like all comedy should be 90 minutes. I'm a big believer in this, this bloated, thing where everything has to be two hours it doesn't just keep it short and simple yeah i mean one of the people who saw like a midpoint cut that was two hours and 20 minutes they called it quote the surrealistic and abstract adventures of a neurotic jewish comedian ultimately uninteresting just kind of a cerebral exercise Hmm. and so yeah by pruning it away i appreciate the willingness to be able to prune it away and put diane keaton as the star yeah that's lovely i feel like this film focuses so much on her that it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, he said that, like, writing for Diane Keaton, and this is sort of a long quote, but bear with me. He said, before Annie Hall, he always wrote, quote, from the guy's point of view. Then, when I was living with Keaton, she was so funny and she was so smart that she opened my eyes to so much just by experiencing things with her. I started to look at the world through her eyes. I think it may have been William Gibson, the playwright, who said that when you love someone, you have experiences through their eyes. And I still look at things through her eyes. I can empathize I can empathize with her, seeing the same bridge or the same movie or the same sunset or the same two characters talking over dinner. I see it through her. And because of her, I started writing for women. And so I appreciate that. Like, I, I, I think he's really sincere there, to well, be honest. I was going to ask you about this, and not to represent all women, but what I really loved about this movie was I think it gives a very layered and three-dimensional portrayal of a woman in a comedy film. And I think in the many copies we've seen of this film, the woman is always, are more times than not shortchanged, right? It is more dominantly dude focused. It's like, oh, the guy learns to grow up and give up his childish things or, you know, it, and I feel like this is a movie that if you watch it as a young woman or a young man or, or an older man or an older woman, you can see both sides. So you can have a hero on both sides. You know, it's it's not just a a dude movie. And I, I thought that was actually, I think that's what I pulled from it this time a little bit more. I was like, oh, wow, this she is as well-formed as he is. I think so, too. Like, I don't know if it's growing up and having more relationships and thinking a lot about how you mutate a little bit, depending on what yeah. partner you're with, that... I was able to see, you know, we talk so much about, like, the Annie Hall costuming. And this time I was really paying attention to how the costuming shows his effect on her. Like, when their relationships are bad, she starts dressing more like him. She's wearing these darker kind of jackets and more black turtlenecks and things. And you see that she is a very different person. And the movie flat out says so, and somehow I missed it, that in her previous relationships, like when she was with the pretentious director-actor guy, that she became this artistic downtown girl. And when you look at her costumes, the movie is saying he is ruining her life, even through the clothes. He's making her a different person. You you play very well. Oh, yeah? So do you. 
Oh, God, what a, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, you say it, you play well, and then right away, I have to say you play well. Oh, oh, God, Annie. Well, oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah. Uh, you, you want a lift? Oh, why? Uh, you got a car? No, I'm, I was gonna take a cab. Oh, no, I have a car. <laughs> You have a car? So, <clears throat> I don't understand. What, if you have a car, so then, then why, why did you say, do you have a car like you wanted a lift? I don't, I don't, I, geez, I don't know. I, I wasn't, <laughs> it's, I got this VW out there. <laughs> what a jerk, yeah. Would you like a lift? <laughs> I mean, that Annie Hall there is the real Annie Hall in a way. That's Annie Hall when she's single and she's not being influenced in any way by him. You know, they say that Diane Keaton actually wore her own clothes. And that seems so Diane Keaton to me right there. You know, like she is vibrant and alive. And it's this uh, odd fascination about wanting to make the person that we fall in love with to become more like us, even though the thing that probably attracted us to them in the first place isn't that they were like us. It's it's a it's a struggle that I think we all have because once you get into a relationship, you you lose that individuality. I think Lauren Michaels said this quote, and it sticks out to me. It's like, you spend your entire relationship trying to make this person into what you want them to be, and then you inevitably leave them once they become that. Because you're sick, you don't want that person. And I and that he probably said it better than that, but I, I just that idea that you were kind of changing the thing that that connected you. And it, I, I don't know how to avoid that or fall into that trap. Yeah, exactly. Like, he starts wanting to share the books he loves about death. Yeah. He's like, have this book about death. Stop reading cat magazines or whatever he accuses her. I mean, cat magazines sound great. I've, but he's like, you like cat magazines. Have this book on death. And she's like, okay. And he's like, you should go into therapy. And then her being in therapy starts being one of the keys that makes her realize she's unhappy with where this relationship is going. And it makes her miserable in a way because she is able to talk out loud and hear when she's unhappy. We already talked about how Woody Allen is so closely associated with Alvy Singer. Um, but I also think that Diane Keaton has, you know, been locked in amber as Annie Hall. We think of her as Annie Hall and people are like, you know, Diane Keaton, her real name is Diane Hall and her nickname is Annie. And I think there's a lot of... As in what, diane Right? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how on earth this would work. Well, I'll have Diane Keaton tell you a little bit about how her nicknames came up and if it's actually even true. Was your real name Diane Hall? My name is Diane Hall. And people used to call you Annie? Never. They never called me Annie. No. They always called me Diane or Di. Di stuck. Uh, when I was really young, it was Didi Diapers. I mean, really nice things like that. So, you know, ordinary. Very ordinary type person. So I think he he captured the essence of that. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. la-di-da stuff. I never said la-di-da in my life until he wrote it. But I was a person who, as you know, couldn't complete a sentence, so. So I think that is interesting because I think we want her to be Annie Hall so much. And I would buy that she is less Annie Hall than he is Woody Allen. Okay, I mean, that makes sense because I was really on the drive here. I heard that Annie was her nickname, too, and I was just messing with that. I was like, die, Annie. I don't understand. <laughs> I kind of want to call bullshit on this because I don't know where you get Annie from, Diane. I mean, if your name is Diane and anybody calls you Annie, I'm please let us know. I'm curious about this. But she does still dress like this character. I had to watch this Brendan Gleeson movie that came out this year. Yeah. I 
don't even remember the name, but she's like a rich woman and she's getting a divorce. Her husband died and Brendan Gleeson is homeless. And so she wants to help save his shack and they fall in love. And anyway, she's dressed exactly like Annie Hall in the whole movie. She's got a little belt, got the little hat on, whole thing. I love it. I saw her once at a party and um, I just was so impressed. Like She still carries herself in this way that whatever she's wearing, whether it's long gloves or a hat, like she is the most interesting. I'm, I'm in. I'm like, you know, I want to I want to watch her. You know, she always is this amazing fashion plate of something that no one else is wearing. Yeah. I mean, which is why I think it's interesting that there's been so many fights over who came up with the Annie Hall look. You know, like Ralph Lauren has tried to take credit for it. He's like, I designed some of those pieces. So obviously they are mine. And other people have been like, Ahem, you designed like only that tuxedo jacket, sir. You don't get to claim right. any hollowness of it. The costume designer apparently hated the look that Aunt, that Diane Keaton was wearing. But then the costume designer, I think, took a little bit more credit for it later. See, I mean, it's, to me, it's just really fun. Like, I love the idea that it reminded me actually of Catherine Hepburn. Remember we were talking yes. about how Catherine Hepburn loved to wear pants and brought this pants look to the films in the 40s? Diane Keaton feels very Hepburn to me. Oh, you know, that. now that you say that, I can't get that out of my head. That's a brilliant comparison. Like, it really is. They have, there are these forces of nature, very different, uh, but also uh, they carry themselves the same way. I love that. Yeah, there's even a little bit of that screwball heroine just in who Diane Keaton is, right? Yeah. It her inability to, to finish a sentence, which I feel like I identify with very deeply. And, you know, she said when Woody Allen said he was writing a comedy for her, she was like, I don't tell jokes. Like, how are you writing a comedy for me? How can I do comedy? I'm yeah. the woman who's in The Godfather. And he was like, just who you are. You don't have to tell the joke. I, I don't now that sounds like you are the joke, but in the nicest way possible. No, well, yeah, I think, the, I think he's funny. writing for her quirks. Like her quirks are she's not telling jokes. She is portraying this character, you know, and and she's doing it really well. What I also realized about this movie and what I think makes it way more powerful than The Clones. And I know I keep on referencing The Clones, but it starts— Oh, my God. I thought you were talking about Star Wars The Clone War. Oh, I got really confused. No, no, no. <laughs> Go no, on. No Django Fett comparisons <laughs> here, Amy. Uh, but the movie opens with Woody Allen as a 40-year-old man. And, you know, in these clones—not Star Wars clones, but in these clones that are— Stealing from this, a lot of the times you're making a Woody Allen movie about 20-somethings or 30-somethings. And there's something about being a 40-year-old man that locks this movie in a different time. Like, he is an antisocial character. He's not going to change. He's, He's had time for two wives. Exactly. And you don't <laughs> often see that. I mean, but no, but I think that that's a different story. It is. It's not like a, oh my gosh, what will our future hold? We'll have kids. I think there is a... It's to me, it feels like a New York story. I mean, obviously, it's a New York story, uh, but it captures people who live in New York. I think you 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 live your life in New York, and you may start your your family life a little bit later. And I think that's something that's actually now caught up culturally. Uh, but back then, it's sort of like I think New Yorkers carried that with them. That you know they were getting married later. It wasn't at the forefront of their mind. And I think the problems of falling in love later in life, like what is convenient to do or what is just easy versus like actually challenging yourself and getting out of that that bubble and, and what makes this movie for me triumphant and going back to Diane Keaton is she is triumphant she she grows she's got the arc and and in, a, in an amazing way and so it's also just cool to see a character of that age evolve 
she he seems to think of her evolving as disastrous yes. in a way. Like when she moves to California and starts wearing white. And I love that there's this kind of visual joke where so many of the people in California are wearing white as though they've all joined the same cult. Yes, like, I love the white. The health food restaurant they're eating at was a cult-run health food restaurant. By the way, shout out to Fat Burger. I got to see an original Fat Burger stand in that montage when they were showing up, very much like uh, the movie we did last week. Yeah, when we saw the tale of the, of the pup hot dog stand, I was like, that's right, best years of our lives. I love it. I didn't. I was really appreciative to see Fat Burger starting out as a stand, and that's one of my favorite burger places out here. Um but, you know, this movie, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in New York. I lived in Manhattan for a long period of time. And I think, you know, being from Long Island, I had to be a Billy Joel fan. And then being a New Yorker, I needed to be a Woody Allen fan as well. And I, I and this movie brings up everything that I love about New York. And when I first saw it, I was like, L.A. is the worst. Now I live in L.A. You're an L.A. person. But it everything about L.A. is unchanged. It's unchanged. I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing about this movie. It's like I feel like New York is unchanged to a certain degree, and so is L.A. It's they're the same entity. I mean, yes, some slight differences, but not much. I mean, you could make this movie, put this out right now, and everything works. I mean, in a way, they have had. I don't know if you've seen a Marriage Story yet. I was going to say, is this the perfect comp? For this movie. I mean, Noah Baumbeck is one of my favorite filmmakers. I love everything he does. Um, and I was thinking about that a lot watching this. I haven't seen Marriage Story yet. And I was like, well, I bet you there's a lot of similarities here. Yeah, very much. Like, I saw Marriage Story maybe two months ago. We had the playwright character played by Adam Driver, the New York intellectual, his actress, giggly blonde wife, you know, played by Scarlett Johansson, who wants to move back to California. And there is, like, the whole East Coast, West Coast divide, the whole how can you be a person who loves this side of the city. And I wasn't thinking of Annie Hall when I saw it. But then when I rewatched Annie Hall, I was like, oh, my God, how many times did Noah Baumbach watch this movie when he made a marriage story? Which is still excellent. Very great. Well, Go see it. You but see I, the you, fingerprints yeah. of everything. I mean, you know, you can see it in direct comparisons from, you know, what Louis C.K. does or what Lena Dunham does or Broad City. Uh, you know, I was even talking before you came here today, like, you see it in what Donald Glover does with Atlanta. Like this movie is so ingrained in our culture and but he's creating all these very specific things that I feel like are Woody Allenisms, like intensely personal things. And when I watch something like Atlanta, there are these, you know, it's it's very auteur driven and not to say that he's the first auteur, but I think people are always trying to ape a Woody Allen style and I like when someone just does what Woody Allen did, which is become an auteur and take their own things and put it out. They're not trying to do a version of what Woody Allen did. I mean, that's fair. And I think that is half of why Annie Hall is, to me, my personal favorite Woody Allen yeah. film by leaps and bounds. Absolutely. Is because, yes, it is that very much permanent establishment of the auteur of who his voice is. You know, narrowing it down from kind of like the 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 fun Woody Allen, the comedian. The, yeah. The more like artificial performer style to like the more intimate style. But also layered with the fact that this is the film where it's not about him, even though it is, where I think he pushes himself to make it about her. And that balance of it's like it's like he found a dance partner in this film with, yeah. with Diane Keaton. And so the gift of all the time that this film gives to her and outside of his brain or being aware that we're looking at her brain through his brain, that makes me like this film better than the rest of them. Where like I think a lot of auteur stuff is just someone in a corner gnawing on their nails and just talking to themselves a lot without of any awareness gazing. of how they're being heard. Well, I think the other thing that he does that makes these characters come to life and these scenes pop are these long shots that are, it's not locked off, but the camera 
is not cutting for close-ups. It's it's staying or tracking with them. And that, I think, really helps in comedy. You know, obviously, Woody Allen comes from a, uh, a Broadway background and uh, comedy background. And I think sometimes comedy best plays when you're not cutting in a million directions. When you look at even something like Manhattan, they do that brilliant scene where he's like walking down the stairs, getting a book, still having a conversation while, uh, you know, she's upstairs. It allows, I think, it to feel real and connected and grounded and uh, and alive in a way. So it doesn't pull the audience's attention. It doesn't say, now look at Woody Allen. Now look at Diane Keaton. It's like, no, no, you can watch a scene any which way you want. So much so that that first scene where you're introduced to Tony Roberts' character, you don't even know where they're where they are. Like they're rounding the corner, walking towards camera. Like they they're so far in the distance. And I I, I love that. I love that you get these elongated scenes. And for, as an actor, those are the best scenes because you get a rhythm and a flow going, and it's not it, it's not interrupted by cuts. You actually have a there's something tangible there. I think I think Judd Apatow steals that a lot. Not steals it, uses that technique a lot for comedy. Just, steals it. Uh, <laughs> it just feels uh, comedy feels more alive. I think when you're able to not cut away every two seconds. Yeah, I mean that scene that you're describing. I always get thrown off because there's the other two people at the end of the block, and I'm always staring at them. Yes, and I forget to even look for for Woody Allen coming up. I'm always like, they seem like they're getting closer, but they're not moving. Right. And then I'm like, oh, they're right there. Yeah, but I never see them. It's really weird. It's a strange optical illusion. I don't know what happens to my brain. But Roger Ebert, when he wrote about this film, he did some calculation. He wrote about it, of course, when it came out, and then he wrote about it later. And he was like, you know, the average shot length in Annie Hall is 14 and a half seconds. Mm. And he said the other films in 1977, their average shot length was between four seconds and seven seconds. So it was much longer. And then when he wrote this piece, which I think was 10 years ago, he was like, now the average shot length is two and a half seconds. Wow. And now, now, like some of our favorite films, like Mad Max Fury Road, the average shot length is 1.7 seconds. No, I think we're always cutting. And as things get shorter and shorter and shorter, we're just trying to jam as much as we can into the shot. And and it's so nice. And that's why I like Noah Baumbach, too. I feel like Noah Baumbach lets his movies uh, breathe. And, And that's important, that those little moments that you find in silence and in just watching characters be in space in a space. And we talk about this in other films too. I think, you know, uh, uh, Elia Kazan does that in Streetcar. You get to see characters exist in a space and same for last week's movie, the best years of our lives there. You're there with them. I'm kind of circling around this idea that you were talking about, like, why do we connect with Woody Allen or why do we think this is like really a Woody Allen movie? Even though the movie's called Annie Hall, he did you, want it to be called temporarily Alvy and Annie, which I think would have thrown it off. Oh, well, I mean, first of all, this movie was called Anadonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. Uh, but they were like, please, please don't name it that. Like, they actually even had like mock-ups like Anadonia coming to Chicago. And like the producer was begging them, please change it. And they, they, um, they had a couple of working titles, which was like, it had to be Jew, uh, a roller coaster named Desire, me and my goy, Anxiety, and uh, my and Alvy. Oh, I mean, maybe all terrible names. All I mean, terrible names. I mean, imagine if this movie was called A Roller Coaster Named Desire, or it had to be Jew. I mean, it's very, it's very much in tone with the Woody Allen films before this. You know, bananas and everything you needed to know about sex. We were afraid to add. like like these comedy titles. But oh, I mean, it, the title does elevate it. Also, just on the note of Annie and Alvy. 
This is something my boyfriend and I talk about because my name starts with an A and his name starts with an A. And we have this theory, like all of his ex-girlfriends also have names that start with an A. I have many ex-boyfriends that start with an A, that A people gravitate to each other. And it's just something in the back of our heads from elementary school being put in alphabetical order. I don't know if this is true. I know your name starts with a P. I know it's in the middle. I'm sure that makes it more confusing for you. No, it's fine. I mean, look, I would say, but W and D. I mean, that's that's Woody and Diane, you know, Diane. (laughs) I said WMD. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You're really uh, jumping uh, through hoops to make sense of what I'm saying today. <laughs> Do you think I'm <laughs> referencing Star Wars and weapons of mass destruction? <laughs> but let's talk about the yellow cake. So uh, <laughs> Let's talk about JFK and the assassination and that shot where they spin around the room. I love that shot. I like I, that idea that A's uh, gravitate towards each other. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if other people think this is true, but I, I have found it to be true in my uh, own we've, life. We've thrown down the gauntlet to you with two questions about, <laughs> about uh, are you Diane called Annie and do A's gravitate towards each other. Um, you know, this idea of it being a Woody Allen film is hard to kind of wrap our head because it, it's it's named Danny Hall. It's not named Alvy Singer. Why do we connect to it as a Woody Allen's story when I think it is equally weighted? And Harold Ramis um, was interviewed about this film and he actually made a really good point. He said he would read psychology today a lot to kind of get ideas for movies and things. And he found that most people have a dream of celebrity. And when Annie Hall came out in that time, Woody Allen was the most dreamt about person. And for me, it's because he represented everyone's vulnerability, everyone's feelings that they were less than they needed to be. They weren't big enough or handsome enough or attra- just attractive enough in general. He's, he's neurotic. He's, uh, he's inept. He's a lot of things. And, and, and maybe that's why people were dreaming about him, because he represents that, I won't say the dark side, but the, the, you know, the, the, the side of all of us that we fear that we're not good enough. I mean, I do feel like part of why Annie Hall hit so big is it was a sixth film. He'd been making good stuff. And it's sort of like when you watch someone grow up, and then they show you what they're capable of, and you're like, yes, that. And, I mean, I'll leave it to people to decide for themselves if they think he ever topped it or if this is really just his high point. To me, I'm so, I'm, this to me, this is his high point. I love this movie. To me, his high point, because I did say this is my favorite, but I would say Crimes and Misdemeanors is my favorite. I mean, it would be a real battle, and they're very different films. Um, I think Annie Hall has an effect on culture that Crimes and Misdemeanors doesn't have, but Crimes and Misdemeanors is, is I mean— even thinking about it, just uh, it's one of my it's one of my favorite films that he made. Wow! I mean, would you ever want that one on the list instead? No, only because if we're going to our rule that one film represents a director, I believe this is the more important film culturally. This is the more important film. That's that right. one is a uh, is a. I mean, I think he's growing as a filmmaker. You know, he's doing so many interesting things, but. This one, the tentacles of this movie are enormous. I mean, to your point about the dreams, like using the dream logic in this movie, if Diane Keaton is going to therapy, which Woody Allen actually did make her do when they were dating. Amazing. Um, and she said that like she was actually secretly bulimic at the time and hiding it from him and that going to the therapist like helped her try to wrestle with her bulimia. Um, but anyway... Uh, If she in this movie is dreaming about Frank Sinatra and her therapist is like, he's a singer. Alvy's name is Singer. You're dreaming about Alvy. If people in the 70s are dreaming about Woody Allen, are they really dreaming about, say, Jimmy Stewart? (laughs) Wow, you went a long way for that. (laughs) 
a long way, and it was, and, and and the most tenuous of connections too. Um, I had to be done. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about that that therapy scene. You know, that's oh, a no sp- answer. I'll take that out. Uh, <laughs> a split screen. You know, that is shot simultaneously on one set with an adjoining wall. You know, now I think you probably just shoot them separately. But that that idea and going back to why it belongs in the list is it, it it influences so many things on such a small level. Like you know, we like you can see elements of Woody Allen talking to camera. Like I think Nick Kroll kind of did that for a Kroll show. Like he would talk to camera about his life and kind of go into sketches. And it's so minuscule at what everyone kind of takes from it. And you. Like all great things, it looks so simple. It looks so self-assured. It like you're like, oh, why am I not doing that? I should do that. I can do that. And you know, and then that's like it's like a, it's it's the best compliment because it looks so easy. Um, I mean, to that point, I want to listen to the therapy scene because I think it's also just such a good example in how both people have absolutely different views of the same facts. Mm. I love that 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 you get equal point of, point of view of both him and yeah. her. Also, when he takes off his shirt, he's kind of ripped, right? Um. I didn't notice that, but I didn't think of, I actually thought of him as being very uh, much in shape. Like I, I noticed him in his tennis outfit. And I was like, wow, he's got like a very, you know, like a very, not cut bod, but a very, uh, a nicely compact body. Wow. Okay. Let's listen to the therapy scene. You're the, wow. You're the one who just <laughs> says he's ripped. Uh, that day in Brooklyn was the last day I remember really having a good you know, we time. We never have any laughs anymore is I've, the problem. I've been moody and dissatisfied. How often do you sleep together? Do you have sex often? Hardly ever, maybe three times a week. Constantly, I'd say three times a week. Like the other night, Albie wanted she to have sex. She would not sex. sleep with me the other night, you know? Just... And I don't know, I mean, six months ago, I, I would have done it. I would have done it, just incredible. to please I, I, I tried everything, you know? I, I, I put on soft music and my, my red light bulb and... But the thing is, I mean, since our discussions here, I feel I have a right to my own feelings. I think you would have been happy because I I really asserted myself. The incredible thing about it is I'm paying for her analysis and she's making progress and I'm getting screwed. I don't know, though. I mean, I feel so guilty because Alvi is paying for it. So, you know, so I do feel guilty if I don't go to bed with him. But if I do go to bed with him, it's like I'm going against my own feelings. She's making progress, and I'm not making any progress. I don't know. I can't win. Then her progress is killing my progress. Sometimes I think I should just live with a woman. I love that. And I also... The subtle difference of he is in traditional analysis, you know, not looking at the therapist, laying down old school room, wood, leather couch. And she is in a more modern, I would say, like psychotherapy or like, you know, she's she's not, she's, uh, you know, hopefully like, we don't see her therapist looking at her therapist and and in a more modern room. And I think that even those subtle things just show you how far apart they are. He's old school. He's doing the old thing. She's kind of going in front of him a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could have avocado toast in the room that she's in right now. Yeah. But this scene makes me feel like I want to hear where they fall in love because I think that that's really beautiful and really important. And I think they sell this scene so well that this scene working is why we really root for them even despite seeing that they shouldn't be together. Mm -hmm. Like, you, know, you are extremely sexy, no, unbelievably I'm sexy. Not. Yes, you are. Because you know what you are? You're you're polymorphously perverse. Well, what, do you, what does that mean? I don't know what that is. Uh, you're you're exceptional in bed because you got you get pleasure in every part of your body when I touch it. You know what I mean? Like the tip of your nose, and if I stroke your teeth or your kneecaps, you suddenly yeah. get excited. <laughs> you know what? You know I like you. I really I really do like you. Do, do, do you love me? That's do, a key I, question. 
Yeah. I know you've only known me a short while. But. Well, I sort of, I think that's sort of, that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you love me? I mean, love is, is too weak a word for the way I feel. I, I love you. You know, I loathe you. I, I love you. No. With two Fs, no. yes. I, I have to invent. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. Don't you think I do? I don't know. I mean, what's interesting is they're having the same conversation about the same things basically the whole time. Yeah. From the first time he's in her apartment and she's worried that she's not smart enough for him in the subtitles, she continues to worry about that until they break up. And he's always obsessed with their sex life. And here he's talking about how she gets pleasure everywhere. She does because she's high. And later on he has a real problem with her being high. But right, he, he, here it's a good thing to him that she enjoys it so much, but he later on can't appreciate it in the same way. That's it, trying to change the person. It's interesting because... You know, Alvin never says the words, I love you, to her. Like, he does say, like, I love you, it's not a strong enough word. But he never says, I love you, which is an interesting, you know, an, an interesting... Uh, he really only talks about her a lot, or primarily through sex. It's not like it... He kind of fails to recognize what we, the audience, see in her. You know, and I think that that's... And that's why I think the movie is triumphant at the end, even though they break up. She is finally being appreciated for who she is as a full person and not just the um, physical, intimate connection that these two characters have. Like, it's almost like she fulfilled one part of him, um, but she wasn't necessarily getting fulfilled by – like he, he was, she was like a possession of his. Like I got this. This is what I got. She'll give me sex. Well, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I think that that's indicative of people in relationships all the time. Um, but she gets to grow. And I think that's in that final scene of them catching up this idea of like, can you be friends after you break up and, and all that sort of stuff. I feel like that, that conversation, you know, whether it's in say anything, whether it's here is a constant, you know, debate, you know, and, and, you know, have you ever kept a relationship with somebody after you broke up with them? Yeah. I think I used to pride myself on being friends with all of my exes and I maintained that until two exes ago when I had two exes in a row and I was like, I don't need it. I'm fine. But other than that, I'm still friends with so many of my exes, and I really think they're great. I think I used, I used to pride myself on feeling like I picked good people, which is why I'm able to be friends with them. I'm like, fuck them. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like, why? Why? This person's rejected you on a base level, or you rejected them? Like, get out of there. Get out of there. They yeah, also sure. Selected you. They also selected you. Sure, get out of there. Oh, it's God. a guilt. It's a weird guilt we all carry. I mean, look, I'm not saying I don't want to or tried to... I just think that I got better as a human being once you determine like, oh, I don't need to be like everyone's like, let's be friends. And then you try that for about like four months, you know, like, oh, I'll check in with them. And you're like, and then after five months, you're like, why am I checking in with this person? Or you just forget your life goes on. And you're like, yeah, I don't need that. Like, why am I doing this to myself? I don't need this. This idea of like wanting to be friends. I'm always like, I well, really like almost all my exes. I really do. I got out of Ford versus Ferrari many, the other day and yeah. I like immediately texted an ex. I'm like, oh, you're going to love this. I can't, I don't want to be in the car. Did with you, you break up with them? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's <laughs> the trick, Amy. When you break up, of course you want to be friends. Cause you got, it keeps <laughs> you, keeps you hanging in there. I'm not a bad person. We're friends. We're friends now. Um, you know who I love in this movie? And I should have done research enough to figure out her name, but I love the girl that he dates after Annie, the one in the, the jean shorts, smoking the cigarette with the lobster. Like it's such a great performance. It's so she's, 
uh, doesn't find him funny, does, is so uninterested in him. Um, and, it, and I love the juxtaposition of that early scene with the lobster and how much fun they're having, how playful it is. And it's such an iconic scene from film history. That's and, the first scene they're happy. Oh, it's so great. And then you see that next scene, like that scene at the end, and it's just like, it's so true. Like he's like kind of recreating something that he did with her, and it's just not, it, it can't even click on any level it's like <laughs> oh i love it so much i mean i'm so happy to see carol kane in here because i love carol kane mm. very i know oh, that yeah. you're a scrooged person as i well, am as I, I mean am. by the way there's a two scrooge people in this movie uh you talked about him earlier john glover oh, who yeah. is the actor who plays that great he's also uh you know i think he plays lex luther's dad on superman he's in gremlins <laughs> 2 uh and scrooge yes i just don't think i've seen anything more beautiful in my life than carol kane with that giant ponytail and mm. her eyeshadow the way it's like rimmed around her eyes really lovely and soft and kind of pink. It's great because I feel like Carol Kane is playing against type. Like in a in a weird way, if you were to do this movie now, or not now, but uh Shelley Duvall, I think you would have Carol Kane playing the Shelley Duvall character, the more flighty character. But I, I like I, this is a different version of Carol Kane than I'm used to seeing. And I love Shelley Duvall in this as well. Yeah, I mean it's awesome to see Shelley Duvall a year after Nashville. Oh being yeah. in here, being one of the characters that he seems to make fun of all the time. I mean, I think if you were like Who's our intellectual comedian? Everybody be like, Woody Allen. But in this movie, all he does is trash on intellectuals. He's just not happy with anything or anybody. And I think that's even shown in that scene when they're breaking up at the end where he has an impeach everybody who has been president. Like, you know, he's just every everybody but him he's unhappy with. And he's unhappy with himself, too. He just doesn't comment on it that much. (laughs) Uh, Can we talk a little bit more about some of the cameos? I mean, you have Jeff Goldblum in here. With one of the best lines, just a, a cameo performance, uh, you know, calling to rem- remind himself because uh, he forgot his mantra. Like, what's his mantra? Uh, and Paul Simon, I didn't I mean, I've seen this movie so many times, but I don't know why I didn't like really think about Paul Simon as a major part in this movie. He's such a great character in this film. He's so intimidating without being anything of what the intimidating other man looks like. I mean, that's. That's what this movie does so well. It like all the tropes that we do, they kind of don't do them the way that Woody Allen does them. Like Paul Simon is like the nemesis to Woody Allen. Like they're both like it's funny. They're equal. They're very equal. And I think that that's great. Like it's not like, you know, I think if we were to do that now, it would be like Matthew McConaughey, you know, like that kind of a guy. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, it is funny that like he has her break up with him for someone shorter. And then when we see him again in the future, he's with Sigourney Weaver. Yes. That shot when they're really far away underneath the theater marquee. He's like, I can bag a tall lady. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be remiss if we did not at least mention Christopher Walken, who, I mean, kind of doing like Dead Zone before Dead Zone, right? I mean, there it feels so much like his character in Dead Zone. It's such a great, uh, I mean, what a great, uh, scene and uh, yeah, we have to listen to that because I have yeah. something I want to say about the scene that happens right afterwards. I tell you this because, as an artist, I think you'll understand. Sometimes, when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights coming toward me fast. I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly, head on into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion. The sound of shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing gasoline. Right. Well, I have to 
And what I love is then immediately the next scene we see that Dwayne has been tapped to drive them to the airport. Oh. And you have this moment that I think is one of the moments that quietly really sums up their entire relationship dynamic, which is the three of them are in the car, you know, Annie, Dwayne, and Alvy. And Alvy is aware that Dwayne is dangerous, and he's all full of anxiety, like he's been this whole time, anticipating death, full of doom and gloom. And Annie is sitting next to him not having had this conversation and oblivious and happy and thinking everything is fine. And that idea of him resenting her contentment, him simmering with something that he knows and she doesn't, it feels very much like who they are. And they've just had this great scene. They've gone to her family, a thing that the he and I and Dan actually did. You know, he's maybe eaten some of that jello salad on the table. I don't know. But this and also this, feels incredibly a, awkward there because he, they fe- he feels that they're looking at him simply as like a Jewish man, like, you know, like, like, which is a great, like, kind of moment where you kind of feel like you, he shows you how he feels, you know? Exactly, exactly, totally. But you see these bits of a wedge. They've been happy, and then here comes the wedge. Well, let me just put this in another perspective for you. Um, I think that a car is a very interesting thing throughout this film. You know, he has trouble with a car, right? When she's driving, he has trouble. When Christopher Walken's driving, he has trouble. When he's driving in LA, he has a lot of trouble. He doesn't give over to anything. And maybe I'm reading way, way too into it, but the idea of just like, he will not lean into anything that is modern, that he's not necessarily like, he's uncomfortable. He's always uncomfortable. Every time he's in a car, he's uncomfortable. Right. As in he needs his feet on the ground. He needs to be doing things on his own terms. Yeah. I think, I mean, look, I'm now I'm realizing there was a scene with Tony uh, Roberts when he's driving. He seems fine. But uh, <laughs> but he was upset because he's looking at how terrible uh, L.A. is at Christmas time, which is a sentiment I absolutely agree with. Yeah, let's listen to that because it puts me in the holiday spirit. And the women, Max, they're like the women in Playboy magazine, only they can move their arms and legs. You know, I can't get over that this is really Beverly Hills. Yeah. The architecture is really consistent, isn't it? Oh, French right. next to Spanish, next to Tudor, next to Japanese. God, it's so clean out here. It's because they don't throw their garbage away. They make it into television shows. Oh, come on, Max. Give us a break, will you? It's Christmas. Can you believe us? It's Christmas here? You know, it was snowing. It was snowing and really gray in New York, naturally. No kidding. Nice. Yeah. Santa Claus will have sunstruck. Max, there's no crime. There's no mugging. There's no economic crime, you know, but there's, there's ritual religious cult murders. You know, there's wheat germ killers out here. <laughs> While you're out here, Max, I want you to see some of my TV show. I love this. And, you know, our engineer, Devin, uh, brought up a great point that this is reminiscent of L.A. story and how Steve Martin kind of took this L.A. chunk here and, and kind of blew it out. In, uh, and I think his love letter to L.A., which, you know, which is the opposite of this, which is a love letter to New York. You know, hearing Tony Roberts there, I think this is a great segue to get into our conversation with Tony Roberts, who uh, in this film plays uh, Woody Allen's uh, good friend and confidant. He's worked with Woody Allen uh, numerous times. He's appeared in 23 Broadway shows, 25 films, three television series, and has recorded over 50 audiobooks and voiceover commercials. Please welcome Tony Roberts. Let's start by talking about you meeting Woody Allen. Let's talk about doing Play It Again, Sam. Right. Actually, I met him before Play It Again, Sam, uh, in his first Broadway play, which was called Don't Drink the Water. And that was a hit uh, and ran for over a year, I believe. Uh, That was uh, the first time that David Merrick, uh, the biggest producer on Broadway, 
began to produce Woody Allen plays. And um, I was in a Broadway play at the time, uh, having replaced Robert Redford in uh, uh, Barefoot in the Park, which was a huge hit. And I was in that for 18 months, and David Merrick wanted me to play the lead in Woody Allen's first play, Don't Drink the Water. And Woody wasn't convinced that I was the right guy. Uh, We had never met. And he came to see me in that uh, Barefoot in the Park about four times, I think. And uh, we'd never spoken to each other. I kept going in and auditioning for this part in in Don't uh, Don't Drink the Water, and I kept not getting it, which is what happens to everybody when they're starting out in this business. Um, But eventually he came to see me in Barefoot in the Park, and he walked into my dressing room. Uh, he was married to Louise Lasser at that time, and she was with him. And he said, uh, you're very good. Uh, how come you're so uh, uh, bad at auditions? <laughs> 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 Which, of course, anybody who's ever been an actor would understand yeah. that an audition is an audition. You know, you, know you, you don't know what they're looking for. You don't know what they want. And you, don't, you haven't had any help to figure out what you should be doing. So it's really like shooting an arrow in the air. But uh, having seen my performance, he said, now I'm convinced that you would be good in my play, so you've got the part. And that was the beginning of our friendship. I was about 24, 25 years old at the time. And uh, he was very shy. Of course, he still is very shy. So we didn't really uh, uh, form a, a, a close friendship until like five years later when I played a dear friend of his in Play It Again Sam on Broadway, and he was in that as well. So we had a chance to really get to know each other. Well, I wanted to ask you about, you know, the shooting style of Annie Hall. A lot of the scenes play out in in essentially like a one the camera's kind of locked off, and it reminded me of the way that you would do you know, a live show, you know, a Broadway show. Did you did you like that style of being able to have that freedom of of letting the scene really play out? Well, I I liked having a job, to be honest with you. I didn't have a lot of films before that to compare style of shooting and all of that sort of thing. I think the only other movie I'd done at that point was, um, I don't know, whether, well, but, but before any all, I had done Serpico and I had done a Disney picture called Million Dollar Duck. But, um, you know, you do what you're told by the, the director and the cinematographer, and the last thing you really find yourself thinking about is, gee, it would be better if they did this in one take or if they didn't uh, do close-ups or over the shoulders, and I would have preferred them to do it all in one grand shot. It, you know, you can take those ideas and uh, put them in your pocket because no one wants to hear that, and that's not your job if you're the actor. I was reading a bunch about the film, and, you know, I think there was like a, a four-hour cut and all these deleted scenes, and so, I mean, from doing the film and, and getting to to the finished product how was that transition did you was it surprising to you to see the finished product absolutely no you you know the actor has nothing to do with the transitions of anything the actor is is does his last shot the crew applauds you get into the car <laughs> and you go home and that's the last time you see anybody until the screening of it, if they are kind enough to give a screening for the cast and the crew, not everybody does that. Um, so that's the first time you go and you see all these people who you were with for 12 hours a day uh, over a three-month period. But 
we're talking maybe five months later after you've uh, gone home right. from the last shot. I think maybe the thing that's the most uh, shocking is that um, the camera isn't always on, uh, on on one's own face. Right. That, that there are cuts away to other people, <laughs> as there very well should be. But 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 it's uh, you know if you're an actor you're disappointed when when it isn't your face on the screen. <laughs> so uh, it's it's always a surprise. But if it's a good picture. You you uh, should get down on your knees and thank heaven because uh, there there are a few of those and there are so many people who want parts in them. Well, I'd l- I'd love to hear about some of those scenes that got cut. I'd love to learn more about them. I was reading this article from the New York Times from 1977, and it opens with you shooting a scene with Woody where you guys are hanging out with the devil. Yes, I think I vaguely remember that as being a shot where we get on a, um, a street uh, elevator, uh, one of those things that they have uh, on the sidewalks, they open them up, two steel doors open up, and then people walk downstairs in order to get into the basement of a building or to go. We get into an elevator, and it starts to descend and uh, suddenly, I think, if I remember correctly, there's a third person in the elevator, and it's the devil. <laughs> so presumably, we're on our way to hell. I, I think it got repurposed for deconstructing Harry, if I'm right, because I feel like he goes, yes, yes he goes to see the devil I, in that. I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. He shot another scene for Annie Hall that was uh, never used in the picture because uh, or when he, he suddenly finds himself in Madison Square Garden, and he loves, Woody loves basketball, of course, and he's on the court, and um, he's going to shoot a scene in the movie with Earl Monroe, uh, one of his great Nick idols, and uh, Woody told me that um, he, he had the ball in his hands, it was an empty Madison Square Garden, there was nobody there except the crew, and he wanted more than anything he could describe to, sh- to try and shoot a basket from center court. And he's a pretty good athlete, Woody. And he said he just couldn't do it. And I said, why Why couldn't you do it? I mean, no, nobody was watching you. You had a few moments free. You could have shot from the center court. He said it would have been too wonderful. <laughs> I don't know what the hell. I don't know. Well, I think it's like, like what the original title of Annie Hall at one point was like Anadonia, which is like the idea that you can't experience pleasure. So it feels like that fits exactly into that zone. <laughs> That's, that's precisely as I remember it. It was called Anadonia, and it was about a guy who couldn't exp- uh, experience pleasure. According to Woody, uh, as the picture uh, got shot, it was telling a story he hadn't really intended. It was a love story that happened in front of your eyes as he and Diane fell in love during the shooting of this picture. And it affected the way the script changed and the way the scenes were added or cut. And he said to me, he said, I can't help it. He said that it's a love story. And if I cut away from it to a basketball scene in Madison Square Garden, the audience will hate me. He said, I can't take them off that that story that they want. How is he as a director? Obviously, you have this kinship and you worked on Broadway and you've done multiple projects with him. But how does he talk to you? Is it is it very blunt or is it quiet? You know, how does how does he direct? I would say it's on the quiet side and um, uh, and very minimal. Ilya Kazan once said that the most important thing the director can do is to cast the right actor in the part. And if he's done that, he doesn't have to do anything else. And I think that's partly why Woody's uh, casting is usually pretty good. And he doesn't have to do a lot of direction because 
the actor is bringing a lot with him that's right for the role uh, as Woody perceives it. He used to have me and, and, and Diane and some other actors come to his apartment one at a time uh, with the script, and uh, we would read the scenes that we had with him. And he would say, uh, do you feel comfortable with that line uh, that, I, that you have there to say? And uh, I might say yes, or I might say, well, not really, because I don't know what it means. Or then he'd say, well, how would you say it? Mm. And I would say it the way I would like to say it. And he'd say, well, then say it that way. Interesting. He, he used to say to me kind of tauntingly, he said, say it any way you want. I'll still get a laugh on it after you've said it. <laughs> so, meaning, meaning no matter what I did, I'd still be the straight man. <laughs> so it, you know, so he was he was challenged by a line I might come up with because he would come up with something maybe that was funnier or work off of it. I mean, he's pointed to Annie Hall and working with Gordon Willis, the DP, as this turning point where, as a director, he feels like he now became an artist and it changed the way he made films afterwards. And having made a lot of those films with him afterwards, did you see that too? Did you see a change in him? Well, he's always been, uh, in my uh, uh, estimation, uh, uh, a real genius. I mean, I knew this before I ever worked with him or met him or anything else. He was already a genius on the comedy circuit. I mean, he, he was different than anybody else in his associations. You know, his connections to things were so bizarre that he was like a revolutionary. You know, he was like a Mort Saul or somebody. He, there was nobody like him. Um, and the subjects he chose to, to, to talk about were so different and original. That, uh, so um, I wasn't surprised that he wanted to get into deeper uh, subjects after his initial half dozen films, which were all just purely comedic or, or completely satiric. Zelig is about as original as anything ever made since Chaplin and, uh, and Keaton. Buster, not Diane. And, um, <laughs> so it was. It wasn't all that surprising to me that uh, that he walked into deeper territory. You know, it's interesting because I think when you have a performer like Woody Allen, you think of him as, oh, well, we're seeing him as the person that he is. But obviously, it's an amped up version of it. But there are things that are from his real life that are taken there, no matter what the film. And I heard that this whole scene where you're calling him Max was kind of based on something that happened in your relationship, right? Yes, yes, yes. We we were getting to know each other at, at the beginning of, our, of, of the uh, play that we were in on Broadway. And we decided to meet one day for a catch in Central Park. So we said we were going to meet at 72nd Street and 5th Avenue. So uh, I was like five minutes late or something like that. And I saw him from about a block away. And I started to yell his name. I said, Woody, 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 I'm here. I'm coming. I'm coming. And when I finally arrived at where he was standing in his army field jacket and his uh, uh, baseball cap and other disguised uh, persona, I said... I'm sorry I was late. He said, that's okay. He said, but don't ever call me Woody in public. And I said, why not? And he said, because people will then know that it's me. And they'll turn around and, you know, they'll look at me and they'll, you know, want to talk to me or give an autograph. I said, "Uh uh-huh. I said, don't you think they know that it's you because you're standing on Fifth Avenue in the fanciest neighborhood in New York City in an army field jacket? (laughs) And, 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 you know, dirty sneakers and, 
you're standing here. Nobody else looks like that around here. They're all in suits and ties and overcoats, and everybody, you know, looks like they've, they've succeeded. And I said, don't you think that might be why they know it's you? He said, D- that doesn't matter. He said, just don't call me Woody in public. I said, all right. I said, I'll call you something else. I'll call you Max. How's that? He said, fine. So for the next for the next two months of our friendship, I... I called him Max. I called him Max on the phone. I, you know, I, I, that's who he was. And then all of a sudden, one day my phone rang and I picked it up and it was his voice. But he said, hello, Max, which was, you know, <laughs> puzzling for a moment. And then I I took my life past before my eyes and I I said back to him, what is it, Max? And since then, we've called each other to this day. It's only Max, Max. And he put that into the script of Annie Hall. (laughs) Well, a story like that, I mean, it makes me think of, I mean, not just him writing your own friendship inside joke into the script, but of that scene where Alvy Singer is so uncomfortable to be recognized on the street. And, you know, he says a lot that Annie Hall is not autobiographical. And not knowing him personally myself, it seems so autobiographical. Like, where do you see Alvy Singer being different from Woody Allen? I I can't say that I do. Um, I think that uh, every picture he's ever made is very autobiographical. Uh, He has other actors play him. You know what I mean? There's always Mm. a surrogate uh, Alvy Singer. You know, his his character is always... um, an intellectual, and an, an, uh, someone who aspires to be uh, an artist, uh, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, to be a great writer or a great uh, painter or a musician or a thinker or something like that. His, his respect for artists is uh, unlimited. So I think he's very uh, revealing about him, who, who, he, who he is in, in those products. You've worked so much everywhere, and your character here really sticks up for L.A. How do you feel about L.A. and the New York versus L.A. culture war? <laughs> well, uh, I'm a New Yorker. I was born about five blocks from where I am now talking to you from <laughs> um, my school. My public school is around the corner. I, I was uh, the first class to graduate this new building that they put up on uh, 81st Street and uh, between Madison and Park Avenues. I, I, I never put down roots in Hollywood. I, I worked there an awful lot and, and uh, rented houses sometimes for four or five months at a stretch if I had a movie to make or a series that I was doing out there. But my heart was always in New York, I have to say. Uh, I love to walk, and New York is the best city in the world to walk in. And uh, L.A. is probably the worst city in the world to walk in. Absolutely. So so, um, right off the bat, I I felt a little uh, out of my element out there. But I had so many friends and so many relatives who were there in L.A. that um, I I had a pretty good time while I was out there, uh, as long as I knew I wasn't going to be out there forever. Well, this has been fascinating talking to you, and I want to let people know that you have a book called "Do You Know Me," uh, which oh. you uh, which you can find. And it's fa- it, it's uh, what I love about this book is it is all these amazing recollections of your your career, like we've just heard here, but also it's a, a little bit of uh, some real good sage advice for actors and and how to kind of your experiences in the business. And I think that this it's a it's a not necessarily a how to book, but it's a I think it's a lot of great, uh, really solid advice in there. Well, bless your heart for saying so. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, 
I wrote that book over a 10-year period of bits and scraps that I had had placed uh, and didn't know what to do with. And finally, I got the courage to try and write a book about it. And um, I had to publish it myself. Uh, so it's available on Amazon and yes. everything like that. But they print it to, to the order. So uh, I think it might be up to $7 by this time. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, but I, I've been thinking maybe of writing another one, which was less about my own personal stories and more about the craft of acting, as I've uh, come to uh, think of it. Well, uh, I may, I may or may not do that. But your words are very inspiring to well, me. Well, you are. You're, you're a fantastic storyteller, an amazing actor, and we were so happy to talk to you. And uh, and uh, thank you so much. Amy, wasn't that amazing to talk to Tony like that? That was, that was, that was. I mean, you've seen him perform. I did. I actually saw him and met him. I was too nervous to tell him this. Uh, backstage at Victor Victoria because I had a uh, a very uh, small connection to Julie Andrews. And I got to go backstage and talk to her after the show. And I got to meet him. And I was so overwhelmed and thrilled to meet him because my connection to Tony Roberts via Woody Allen was so much stronger than my connection to Julie Andrews. Um, and I was just floored. But uh, what what a, what a great guy. Yeah, I mean, it is funny how his character serves as like this angel figure, I feel like, in the movie. you know, Or is he a devil? Or both. Yeah, he's bo- you're right. He's both. He like nudges him in one way, but then... Then he has that joke about 16-year-olds. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, you know, he's capturing an, another part of, you know, the life that could be, right? Like, these, he's surrounding himself by people. Like, you know, Woody Allen's character doesn't want to go to L.A., doesn't want to work on TV, doesn't want to give out awards, doesn't want to do anything. And I think that that is so true to Woody Allen. But looking at other people and seeing how they're happy. Like, I mean, Tony Roberts is happy and having a healthy life. And, and it seems as we watch the movie – his life is getting less and less happy and 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 more small as we go forward. Um, well, yeah, everybody's leaving him behind. Literally, they're leaving him to go to California, and you know he is really judgmental about how Tony uses that laugh track, you know, at his sitcom that like yeah. laughter doesn't count if unless it's earned. Which makes me think of like him telling Annie, "Your pleasure doesn't even count unless I feel like I earned it." Yeah, you know, he has he just keeps setting up boundaries to make things harder for him to attain. And I just have to say, I would feel remiss if I didn't mention that uh, when Woody Allen made this film, he was dating two 16-year-olds. Oh, I thought he was dating Diane Keaton during this film. They had broken up actually a couple years before. Oh, So okay. they were exes who get along when they okay. made this movie. There you Maybe go. it's a reason to stay friends with your exes. But yeah. yeah, he was dating the two 16-year-olds, one named Stacy, one named Christina, who would wind up inspiring Manhattan, or both claiming that they partially inspired Manhattan. And one of whom, in an interview she gave a few years ago, not recently— uh, said that after she dated him, she wound up becoming a personal assistant to Jeffrey Epstein. Wow, Amy, you're really dropping some bombs here. Just had to say it. And she also did say that the only time she ever saw Woody Allen reveal a vulnerability was while they were dating, he got a phone call that he wasn't expecting from Diane Keaton. And Diane Keaton called to say that this cat that they had adopted together had died. And the his girlfriend at the time, the teenager, wrote, you know, I looked at him and I looked at his hands and they were trembling. And in that moment, he wasn't even in the room. Don't you feel like that scene's in the film? Like when she calls about the spider, like I feel like he, his whole demeanor drops when she calls. Like, I feel like that's such a, a great little scene and he, you know, rushes over there as if there was an emergency like that. You know, it's just a spider in the shower and not even that big, obviously. And he would not be the first person I'd call for that. When I think about this movie, I feel such an intense connection to it. 
but I also recognize that it it mirrors a lot about my own life, right? And 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 being a New Yorker and and being in this business. And I often think like, does this movie connect for everyone? Or is this is this a you know, a, a coastal film. I don't know. Like, do you, do you get a sense of how Woody Allen's films hit the a middle America? Well, actually, I wonder if, like, when you're just an American period, you're so flooded with images of New York and L.A. that you're almost unofficial citizens of them, too. Right. You know, you, you, you know them so intimately. Like, when you arrive in L.A. for the first time, you're like, oh, yeah, I've been here. Right. You know? And, and the same thing with New York. You're just like, ah, this is what I, I have mapped this in my head, and now it is real. But these problems and what they're talking about and going to see black and white films and and the literature that they're talking about, it, it's it's very niche. These are New Yorkers. These are like 1970s New York problems, right? Are are they clearly this movie has affected culture, but we talk about this list and I think we can talk about it for positive and negative. Like, is this movie lauded? for it being great and everyone loves it? Or is it because this list is made by people in the 70s who this is on their playing field? This is what they know. As much as they know George Lucas and they want to, you know, support American Graffiti, they want to support Woody Allen. Like, like, I don't know if we have, there's an answer for that. I, I certainly am not that removed. I, I would, again, if we're throwing down questions to our listeners, I'd love to see what people's experiences are with Woody Allen. Do you feel that connection that like he is a part of my makeup as like as a as a performer as a writer uh, you know like you want to live that life and i mean i guess what harold ramis is saying like people dreamed about him but that was in the 70s does that still does that retention still there i mean i wonder cuz i don't feel the need in 2019 to say we have to have a woody allen film on the list i don't feel that need anymore right. honestly I mean, you don't think that this film belongs on this list. I, but that that's I'm trying to parse the difference. This film belongs on the list, but I don't think insert Woody Allen film here has to be on the list. I hear what you're saying. Do you know? Mm-hmm. But this film, yes. I love this film. I love it for Diane Keaton. With Diane Keaton, we just saw her get robbed in two Godfather movies. Yeah. I love this Diane Keaton. And I don't want to lose her. And as for the relatability, I guess my maybe my own to me at least my own experience watching this and getting it more now that I've had even more adult relationships and things hearing what popped out to me this time felt so different and it made it feel like such an even more mature film than I remembered it being that it wasn't just like adults play acting at drinking wine with ice cubes and talking about being grown-ups yeah well you know I thought it would be interesting to hear what Woody Allen thought about his appeal and this is from like the late 70s he's talking about it this is after Annie Hall has come out and you know this movie is not a box office hit, but it does do a, uh, it's a critical hit. Uh, not a critical hit, I mean a cultural hit. So take a listen to uh, Woody Allen talking about his limited appeal. I have a nice loyal following that sees all my films, but it's not enormous. I mean, I've never had a picture that's, you know, anything close to, I don't know what to say, The Sting or, or the, those kind of pictures. You know, I have a nice sort of steady following that supports me. And it's fine. I mean, I don't, yeah. I, I just assume have a limited appeal because that way I feel I can continue to try and do good work and not have to worry about the problem of of uh, changing my work to include everybody. Mm-hmm. And I love that that thought. And you know, again, not to go back to the Marvel and the Scorsese and everything, but this idea of when you can have the freedom to have a filmmaker like this, to release a film like this in the theater. I mean, it was such a great treat to go see a Woody Allen movie in the theater. Like, and now, barring all the controversy, he had to go to Amazon, right? Like, you know, there's 
he's getting, you know, these filmmakers are getting shut down if they can't make these bigger things. And I think there's a part of me that thinks I want, you know, I want more marriage stories. I want all these movies that they don't have to hit on a big level. And because you never know when one of these will kind of culturally impact us for years to come, like, you know, what will be that, that movie, that little movie that becomes something that that influences us for years and years. Yeah, I mean, I want more marriage stories. I feel like I don't need more movies from Woody himself. Like, of course. I think if there's anything that I've seen in his later films, I think he's showing almost an, a, a lack of ability to empathize with other people and grow, which I, which I don't feel like I see in Annie Hall. Well, this is a 40-year-old man who is self-aware to question himself, and I think time is, 40 years has gone on. You know, I think... As you become but you an eighty, you still got the same questions. Yeah, so, I, I mean, yeah. I also think as an eighty-year-old, you're not you're like yeah. you're just not asking why. Who's asking questions at that point? You don't need to. I mean, I, you know, maybe there are a handful, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't I don't know. Feel like I need him to keep asking them. But what I thought was funny was, yeah, we were talking about the Scorsese-ness. We were talking about the Francis Ford Coppola when he weighed into the act. I found a quote from Woody Allen from 1992 where he said this quote: "Sequelism has become an annoying thing." I don't think Francis Coppola should have done Godfather 3 because Godfather 2 was quite great. And when they make a sequel, it's just a thirst for more money. And I don't like that idea. There you go. Shots fired. Everyone is firing all over the board. (laughs) I mean, you know, Amy, I think the thing that we are finding about this movie is that you remember the big moments. You remember him pulling uh, Marshall McLuhan out from behind a poster, which, by the way, there were a couple of alts for that. Marshall McLuhan was one of the people. He also was maybe thinking about getting uh, Federico Fellini or uh, Louis Bonuel to like come out, which I thought would have been interesting as well. Um, but you think about that. You think about the animation scene. You think about you know uh, the big comedy moments. But I think this movie, what we're realizing is, I think the reason why it exists and why it kind of works is because of this deep emotional connection between these characters. Yeah, I mean, I mean... To all the name-checking of, like, foreign directors, I thought it was really interesting that he decided not to have a score in this movie uh, unless because, – because he was inspired by Bergman. He was like, Bergman doesn't use a score. I don't need a score. So he was imitating so much the great masters to make what people think of as his masterpiece that later on he was like, you know what? I can be my own person. I can add score back in. Mm. But, yeah, I, I feel like – I don't think Woody Allen today has grown up that much more than this character but I think I have grown up to this film Mm -hmm. and that makes it really valuable to me like I was thinking in this watch there's this one scene that I've never realized was the pivotal scene in this entire movie before and in this time it jumped out at me because I've broken up with people for reasons like what happened in this scene and I was like this scene is why they break up this scene is why they can't get back together this scene is why she has to leave him and it's a little long but I want to play it anyway if she has started singing, she's now performed. She had the number in the tuxedo jacket, and a record producer comes up to her and Woody afterwards. Are you, are you recording? Uh, I do. Are you with any label now? Me? <laughs> no. No, 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 not at all. Oh well, I'd like to talk to you about that sometime if you get a chance, and oh, well, possibly gosh. working together. Well, hey, that's that's nice. Uh, oh, listen, this is uh, Alvy Singer. Do you know Alvy? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't know, but I know you work. I'm a big yeah. fan of yours. Thank you very much. Pleasure. This is uh, Sean and uh, Bob and hi, Bob and Petronia. Hi, hi, Bob. Um, we're, we're going back to the pier. We're staying yeah. at the pier, and we're going to meet Jack and Angelica and have a drink there. And if you'd like to come, we'd love to have you. And we can just sit and talk. Nothing. 
Uh, not a big deal. It's just relax. Just be very mellow. Mm. Remember we had that thing? What thing? <laughs> Don't you remember we, we discussed that thing that we were... Thing? We, yes, we had it. Oh, the thing. Oh, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, if it's inconvenient and if you can't do it now, that's, that's fine, too. We'll do it another time. Oh. Maybe if you're on the coast, we'll get together and... And we'll meet here. Oh, it was a wonderful set. Oh, gosh. I really enjoyed it. Nice to meet you. Good night. Hey, bye bye. Good night. Bye. Yeah, bye. What's, you, what's the matter? What, you, you want to go to that party? I don't know. I thought it might be kind of fun. You know, I mean, it would be nice to meet some new people. I'm just not, you know, I don't think I could take a mellow eve because I, I don't respond well to mellow. You know, I mean, I have a tendency to, if I get too mellow, I, I ripen and then rot, you know, and it's, it's not good for my... All right, all right, so you don't want to go to the party, so uh, what do you want to do? And he makes them go see The Sorrow and the Pity again. And, you know, I really this time was paying attention to how a person comes up who wants to help her career, who wants her to become an artist in her own right. He rolls his eyes. She does her best to... Fold him into the conversation. Give him an ego stroke. And here's a moment where she could do something new with her life that's not about him. And he absolutely sabotages it. Well, absolutely won't let her grow. And she has to leave him at that That's point. the idea, like we were saying before, like he's holding her hostage to a certain degree. Like he, you know, she is a piece of his life that he has put there, but he's not, you know, he doesn't want to share it and he doesn't want it to grow. It just wants to be the way he wants on a shelf. Exactly. And I respect that scene for being in here. You know, that scene takes some honesty. He could have felt like, parties are lame. I hate parties, which he does. But he is aware of what he's doing. Do you know? But it's interesting because, you know, he takes her to see Sarah and the Pity, which is a kind of a runner throughout the film. And then at the end of the film, he kind of feels victorious because she goes to see Sorrow and the Pity. Um, which, again, knowing how he's an unreliable narrator, who knows? But... Um, you know, maybe they never got back together because we already know that he already fudges the ending. But um, you know, it 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 never changes though. He he like he still wants that victory, like, oh yeah, I did I did change her for the better. Like in his mind, he did change her for the God, better. God, but he's probably dragging Sigourney Weaver to the sorrow and the pity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like who what's playing Sorrow and the Pity that much? I mean, it's always playing in uh in this version of New York. Amy we're talking about this movie and how it kind of works on so many levels and how Woody Allen's kind of this beloved guy. You know, I can't imagine people not liking this movie when it comes out. Do you, do you have anything? Oh, I found one. I found oh, really? a really mean one. Buckle oh, wow. in. This All one right. is mean. This... But rare, right? Am I, am I true in saying that it's rare to find a, uh, a negative yeah, review? There were one? a few, but this one I was like, whoa. All right. You ready for this? Yes. Uh, you might need to be holding on to something. This review is from John Simon in New York Magazine, and he writes, With Annie Hall, Woody Allen has truly underreached himself. His new film is painful in three separate ways. As an unfunny comedy, poor movie making, and embarrassing self-revelation. It is everything we never wanted to know about Woody's sex life and were afraid he would tell us anyway, and now he does. He calls uh, Annie Hall a film, quote, so shapeless, sprawling, repetitious, and aimless as to seem to beg for oblivion, and at this it is successful. He says that the jokes are wrong, are predictable. He gets some of the key plot points wrong here. He says that it's Annie Hall in bed during the JFK scene when it, it's uh, right. Uh He says that Alan drags in a whole gallery of the most unappetizing showbiz personalities of our time. Carol Kane, Paul Simon, Christopher Walken, listed as unappetizing personalities. I'm listening. Um, and, then, and then here's where it gets bad. 
And then there is Diane Keaton's scandalous performance. Her work, if that is the word for it, consists of a dithering, blithering neurotic coming apart at the seams, an acting style that is really a nervous breakdown in slow motion. He says that her performance is bad taste to watch and an indecency to display. And he concludes that in the film, the fake Annie in the Synecdoche, New York scene within a scene, played by Robin Mary Paris, that she should have played Annie, capable as she appears to be of keeping her head above a stagnant pond. Wow. So interesting. I mean, because he basically calls out everything and says the opposite of what we all love about this movie. Yeah. When I heard this review, I was like, this critic, see, I don't like to psychoanalyze critics. I hate it when I get psychoanalyzed. Yeah. I'll just tell you everything. But um, this critic seems to be awkward about people being vulnerable. You know, like yeah. he almost seems to be like, I want a movie where everybody's like, we're great. We're swell. Hello. Here's a funny joke. And he's so put off by how re- naked this movie can be in its emotions that he's like, disgusting. I can't watch it. Well, it's sort of like Woody Allen, go make your movies like bananas again. That, you know, big slapstick, silly. And, you know, and that I think is always the, the trap with a lot of filmmakers, especially comedians. When you want to make a transition, you get judged against what the expectation is of you. Like, well, why isn't it like that? Like, you know, that should be like that. And especially when you're Woody Allen and you're in the face of it, you know, that's why I think when Jim Carrey does something that, you know, when he was at the height of his career and does something either weird, like Cable Guy, which is one of my favorite comedies or, or something very dramatic, people are like, no, 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 no. Like they're, they're judging you based on past performance and not on you, you kind of can't separate yourself. And uh, while many people did allow him to separate himself it, it seems like that guy's having a hard time letting go. And it's from New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. That must have really just, that, that reminds me of the hurt that uh, Woody Allen must have gotten, like Spike Lee got when the New York Times uh, held him responsible for do the right thing. Yeah, that review was so bad. I almost wanted to ask Tony Roberts about it, and then I check it out. <laughs> I wanted to talk, though, about this movie's legacy. And there is somebody who doesn't really love this movie that I think it's important to hear from. And that person is Woody Allen. And I'm going to leave this whole quote in. Uh, This is a question and the answer. So take a listen. Every contemporary comedy director is still trying to make Annie Hall, except for the guy who actually made it, who thinks the film is is overrated. You don't, you don't dislike Annie Hall, but are you, are you a little bit bewildered why (laughs) that film has still so much sentimental appeal to people 40 years later and they still make a big deal about it and talk it's about likeable, it? It's uh, likable to people. I mean, you know, for some reason that film is very likable. I've made better films than that. Uh, you know, take them, uh, nothing. Uh, Match Point is a better film. Uh, I know you like Purple Rose. Uh, Purple Rose of Cairo is a better film. Um, the, um, the French one, Midnight in Paris, is a better film. Um, uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona is as good. Um, you know, I mean, I've made films that were as good. But for some reason, that's got some little charismatic, inexplicable hold on people. That in Manhattan, too. Um, all over the world, Manhattan plays all the time. It's got some, you know, nothing that I did. I mean, it, it's, sheer, it's sheer chance. No, you just wrote uh, and directed well, it. No, but I mean, I make them. And, and, them. and I make them, and through sheer surprise to me, ones that I think are perfectly delightful, nobody's interested in. And another one that I think is, yeah, that's fine. They're ultra interested in. 
I mean, what I hear in there is I don't want to be on any AFI list that would have me as a member. That's exactly what I think, too. And I thought it was really interesting, like this idea of anhedonia, not being able to experience pleasure and joy. Like, like, you know, it's I think there's a great quote that he said in another interview when I was researching this. There was a quote like, what do you like to do? And he was like, oh, I like to do anything that I'm not doing in the moment that I'm doing it. Like if I'm writing, I like acting. If I'm acting, I like writing. Like, you know, it's like and I think that that is this this thing that always like chases you. Like I would rather be doing something else. And, and, you know, look, I believe Woody (laughs) Allen. Picturing him as a grandpa with one of those bumper stickers. That's like, I'd rather be golfing. And then it's crossed (laughs) out, making a movie, crossed out, (laughs) writing a movie, crossed out, complaining about my life. It would change based on what he was doing. Like a hologram. Yes. But I do believe that that's not Woody Allen being humble. I believe that that's Woody Allen being exactly the character that we know in this film railing against society. Society says Annie Hall is great. He's like, well, I don't think it's that great. That's It's so par for the course of the character that we know and meet. I don't think he, like, I think there's other actors like, oh, well, thank you. I, I But no, it's not, you know, it's it's the people's film, whatever. He's not doing that. I think he leg- legitimately has bought into this belief that that's, you know, how the movie, that's, that's how he feels about it. And yet over and over again, he says this film is not an autobiography. The only thing that's autobiographical is that I've always been obsessed with sex. And that's it. Well, You're there like, you go. All right. Um, Amy, is there a Simpsons? Why, yes. The Simpsons that I have pulled is from an episode called Love is a Mini Splintered Thing. I want to play a clip from the beginning and a clip of the end because it is all framed as this is Bart Simpson's Annie Hall. Picture, if you will, Bart Simpson with hair, uh, with glasses, with a tweed jacket, with a plaid shirt, as he gives this monologue. Everything I know about women can be summed up by a jump rope rhyme. Girls go to Mars to buy candy bars. Boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Except I didn't have to go to Jupiter to get stupider. I had a bigger ball of gas I could study. So that he has this tragic romance with a girl named Mary... And at the end of the episode, he delivers this. And that's when I learned Cupid was just a fat, naked jerk with an arrow. But surely you didn't give up on love after just one setback. Love is our only defense against the abyss in this meaningless universe. Love. What is it? What does it mean? How do you spell it? No one knows. Fortunately, there is a cure. Any video game ever made. Remember, this game is for age 14 or under. If you are older than that, please get help. And Elisa Simpson with a bowler hat and a tie and a vest sadly walks off. I also like that he does clear his throat, which Woody Allen does upwards of 12 times in this movie. So, Amy, I guess the question comes down to it, and I know we've kind of danced around it numerous times here. Does this movie belong on the list? Definitively, I'm asking you that question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know that we're getting into territory that we... Had to wrestle with it Chinatown, too. With Chinatown and the stories about Roman Polanski, I kind of wound up coming on the side of, you know what, we've got better noirs, we've got yeah. better L.A. films, we've got better all of these, we've got more Jack Nicholson performances. Yeah. I could live if we didn't have this film on. With Annie Hall, it's really tough for me because we have this Diane Keaton. That's so amazing. We have this film. Iconic. That, iconic. We have a film that I feel really moves me today as much as I wish it didn't. Um, but it still does. It absolutely still does. And I mean, I guess it was touching on this a little bit earlier. I don't need any more Woody Allen. I'm I'm right. kind of done. I don't want to buy a ticket to a new Woody Allen film. I, I kind of right. want him just to stop. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, I cannot not love this film. And I don't want to take away the work that Diane Keaton did in this film. 
You're right. There's so many issues surrounding it. And and I don't want to get into the weeds with that because I think we did a good job at the beginning just talking about how we're going to be talking about this this movie. And I, I agree with you pretty much, pretty much the same way. I just think it's, you know, I don't like the idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, for these films that I think are important and are culturally important. Uh, but it's something we're going to always have to wrestle with. And, you know, maybe for me, if anything makes me feel better uh, that this all happens before these allegations against Woody Allen. This is a time before, you know, uh, before this person becomes the person that, you know, is is part of a cultural conversation, not for his work. Yeah, I mean, right? this is about him being in love with a woman who's appropriate for him. Right. Which he had been until he was making this movie. <laughs> there you go. I mean, look. Um, Next week, we are going to get into a heavyweight film on this list, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. And so it got me thinking, you know, Raging Bull is the story of real-life boxer Jake LaMotta. I want you to pitch us your own raging animal movie about a real-life figure. Like if you were going to do, say, Raging Turtle, the movie about Mitch McConnell ruining the planet. Uh, so give us a call with your raging, rah, whatever animal you want it to be, and who that film would be based on. Give us your best pitch, your best elevator pitch, and give us a call at... 747-666-5824 that is 747-666-5824 